thank you so much, Emma. Um, it's great to chat to you today. So I was just wondering if we could start off, um, if you just letting me know kind of who you are and what your role is at the CVR, but also within the NHS. Uh, so um, my name is Emma Thompson and I, I'm a, a clinical professor in infectious diseases at the MRC Centre of Advice Research, but uh, also I work as an infectious diseases consultant within NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde um, with a particular interest in bloodborne viruses, so HIV and hepatitis C. Fab, and you've been um, involved in the last couple of years with setting up a new network within Sub-Saharan Africa um, focusing on hepatitis C, so I was wondering if you could just tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so um, around about 10 million people will have hepatitis C in sub-Saharan Africa, but the virus there has been really um, neglected and uh, we know that it varies quite a bit and has different genotypes and that the treatments that we have available now are quite extraordinary. It's one of the, the largest advances um, that we've seen in recent years to have curative treatment for most people with hepatitis C. Um, but all of the clinical trials that have been carried out actually uh, have been carried out in, in um, countries like in Europe or in uh, North America, uh, Australia and so on, and th there have been really few uh, clinical studies in Sub-Saharan Africa. And so the Sub-Saharan African network um, is designed, it was set up to network and link people treating hepatitis C in Sub-Saharan Africa, and that involves 12 different countries from west right across to the east side of Africa. And um, includes uh, countries with different um, settings and different setups also for treatment and different types of treatment program. Uh, for example, we have uh, Rwanda, which has been a, a real highlight um, in terms of the availability of treatment in Africa. And they, they have been treating for quite some time, uh, but we have other countries where there is no national program and there are other um, concerns. So for example, we have, um, uh, involvement from DRC and other countries which have more challenges uh, and other major health concerns for their populations. And so uh, the, the network is really to link both um, clinicians, uh, researchers, administrators, um, and, um, and others with an interest in hepatitis C to try to facilitate uh, treatment of hepatitis C in African countries um, to provide um, a network of physicians who treat the the illness to, so that they can network and also think about best ways of uh, task shifting, for example, in HIV clinics and things to, to allow them to use those resources to treat people with hepatitis C uh, in the, using the same kind of infrastructure. And um, there's a research component also to the network. So we are very interested in looking at how diverse the virus is in sub-Saharan Africa. And we found a number of new subgenotypes of um, the, the virus. Um, but the good news is that um, so far, the treatment response rates to those, uh, those viruses have been very good with standard treatments. Um, and while I think perhaps in the future, we might want to refine some of the guidance uh, that's out there for countries in Africa with regard to treatment, uh, there are pangenotypic regimens that seem to work really, really well. and so. Elimination by 2030 is a, a reality, it's, it's possible, but it will still require quite a lot of buy-in from ministries of health and governments um, in, in Africa. And in fact, we, we have involved uh, policymakers in the network as well. And I think that's really critical that they 
also buy into the opportunity, um, one of the few opportunities that we have to eliminate a virus uh, at the moment. And uh, um, it's very close, uh, but it does require a lot of effort. Absolutely. And it's really interesting you saying the differences between the countries um, in terms of kind of availability and almost uptake of, of the ability to treat. So do you think is that political um, or are there kind of other social aspects to that as well? Yeah, I think, I mean, there are very different governments in place in different countries in, in Africa, and also there are different concerns for those governments. So um, I, I mentioned, for example, DRC um, has had significant problems with Ebola, for example, and other, other health diseases, and also there's a lot of um, instability in the country. And so uh, getting hepatitis C tr treated and um, dealt with uh, is, it's on the agenda but it's probably not the first thing on the agenda but I think getting it on the agenda is is, is a huge step and um, there is a there is buy-in and uh, I think it's quite exciting that people who have been suffering from hepatitis C and, and it is a large number of people it's one in seven infected people around the world are in Africa um, and, and there are specific concerns in countries uh, which have limitations in terms of resource so Africa obviously varies hugely so we have we, we interact with um, people in South Africa, for example, which has a lot more, you know, it's a much higher GDP and health expenditure um, and, and faces fewer problems than some of the other countries. And I, so I think, um, but we have a country, we have Rwanda, which has a relatively low GDP, but a, a real commitment to, to elimination. And so, you know, I think uh, it's, it's really helpful for other countries to see that progress and to, to see the, the huge change that it can make for people who who no longer are facing um, high risk of, of uh, cirrhosis of the liver and cancer, which you know, are the, the, the major problems associated with hepatitis C. Brilliant. So I, I guess as well that with um, the network, there'll be a much increased connectivity between these countries so that they are able to see the successes. Um, and I know that um, we'd spoken late last year about some uh, projects that had been funded um, through uh, through the networks, so I was wondering if you could just highlight maybe a couple of them and kind of explain some of the the projects that are being funded by the network. Yeah, so one of the projects is a is um, to look at the diversity of hepatitis C in Benin, and um, it involved like collecting epidemiological data from people who were infected, and then um, uh, looking at at the virus itself as part of a kind of population based study to see which genotypes of hepatitis C were most common and um, there will be a paper coming on this in due course, but uh, there are many different types of genotype one and two hepatitis C in Benin, including many novel ones which haven't previously been described. And we uh, found that that the the sustained virological response rate, so the, the cure rate, effectively of of people with these genotypes was really high. However, we also found that there's a lot of genotype two hepatitis C, and that um, that some regimens would be slightly preferable to others. So in Africa, um, sofosbuvir and ladipasvir is quite widely available and quite quite um, reasonably priced, but uh, it wouldn't be a good choice of treatment for the patients with genotype two. And so if the um, government uh, are planning future treatments for hepatitis C, we would recommend um, a regimen like sofosbuvir and valpatisvir, which is one of the WHO recommended regimens. Um, and that would probably be slightly preferable to some of the other um, treatment uh, regimens which are available. 
in Africa. So uh, we've been able to uh, look at what would be best at a population level so that people don't have to be, have genotyping carried out, which is really expensive. It's actually prohibitively expensive in Africa. And um, uh, most of the guidelines now say that genotyping is not always necessary. Uh, that seems to hold true in West Africa, in Benin, which is really reassuring because actually there's been very little um, information on what the virus looks like in those countries. And it is much, much more diverse than it is in Europe and North America. Um, so it, it, yeah, it's, it's all actually quite good news. But, uh, and so we are using these types of studies to try to provide advice to governments about what treatments would be best for their population. That's great. And, and just kind of going um, back to sort of infrastructure, um, and when I've been having chats with kind of other researchers um, in Africa saying how the infrastructure that's been created by COVID um, for surveillance of viruses is actually going to be very useful for some viruses like HIV and, and other things. Um, and I was wondering if that's the same for, for hepatitis. Yeah, I think so. <clears throat> um, so there are some nuances about what what um, sequencing, for example, can be used for uh, for hepatitis C at, in Africa, and um, my feeling is that it can be very useful for research pro on a research sort of project level to understand what genotypes are circulating in the population, and and those may well be undescribed genotypes. And we found also not just in Benin new new subgenotypes, but also in um, Uganda as well and uh, DRC. So there are you know there are a number of um, variants of the virus which have been not very well explored. Uh, that is a sort of that is probably best used at a population level to help to determine what the best treatments are for the population as a whole, uh, given that there are pangenotypic treatments, um, uh, rather than uh, suggesting that people who have um, who are going to be treated should have genotyping done, which is the old old route and is still used in Europe quite commonly. So in Scotland, for example, we do genotyping on our patients before we treat them and we give a, a treatment course, which we think is most optimal for that genotype. It also, if genotyping is freely available, it can actually help you reduce costs slightly because some regimens are cheaper than others. But in Africa, that, that has been really prohibitive and um, the sequencing has usually been sent out, not just of country, but out of continent. And um, it, it becomes almost as, as expensive as the treatment itself. And so the advent of pan-genotypic treatments is a huge advance in Africa. And um, I, I wouldn't suggest at all that people need to do genotyping on their patients, but um, it is useful to see what hepatitis C um, variants there are in country, and it can also enable studies um, that are looking to try to identify uh, groups of people who are, have been infected and what the sort of growth rate rates are in those groups of people. And um, you, you can you can um, try to understand better about patterns of how the virus is circulating in different populations in the country, and that that could be helpful helpful for public health interventions, which are also really critical. Uh, still in Africa, there are a very large number of healthcare workers infected with hepatitis C, for example, and um, <clears throat> there is almost certainly still quite a high rate of nosocomial transmission of hepatitis C through um, occasional reuse of needles. And that situation has, has got much, much better in recent years um, with, with blood transfusion screening and um, and advocacy for not reusing needles, but occasionally it does happen and it, it often 
also can happen with unlicensed practitioners. And so um, a, a level of awareness about that is really important. And so, yeah, understanding patterns of, of outbreaks and things in country can be helped with genotyping. Absolutely. And I think to be able to do genotyping or any of the surveillance, you also need to be able to di diagnose within the countries. And um, going back to last year, I wondered whether you could just say a bit about the um, origami diagnostic kind of origami like um, folded paper diagnostic kit, which um, was, was kind of November last year, wasn't it, that that came out in, um, in nature. Um, and I think that's a really interesting kind of thing to to increase diagnostics. Um, so, yeah, I was wondering if you could chat about that a bit. Yeah, I think um, so. The World Health Organization has identified diagnosis of hepatitis C as being a major barrier to treatment. And um, in fact, it's very difficult to always know exactly who the populations most at risk are. But we do know, based on the kind of data that, that are available, that it's, it is best to uh, target screening for people who are most at risk and to treat them. And so rather than doing whole population screening, which actually may be necessary in some places so Egypt for example has done has done huge uh, amounts of screening and uh, is really leading the way in, in many ways with the number of people that they've treated for hepatitis C um, but uh, it yeah it may it can be difficult to, to figure out who the right people to screen are and um, the risk factors for acquisition of hepatitis C do vary quite a bit um, in different settings and so um, uh, so the second barrier is that diagnostics are not always readily available, and if they are, people have to maybe come travel, for example, a long way to a clinic, uh, particularly in African settings, and they may find it difficult to come back for the results, and, that, that, and sometimes they don't come back, and actually that, that, may, that loses a large number of people who could be treated. Uh, it's far better to run the test on the day and say you've got hepatitis C, here's the course of treatment that you need to take, particularly when treatment now is so safe and, um, and much safer than it used to be and uh, can be given as a course basically and then patients can be followed up less often than they used to have to be in the past. So um, yeah, those, those uh, considerations are really important. And so the origami um, test was uh, a paper-based diagnostic based on um, uh, a technique called LAMP where you can amplify the virus and detect it through color change um, on like a bit like a pregnancy test and there were different sort of variant variations of that so we had a platform that was like a pregnancy test and another one which was uh, about uh, a bit different with folded paper and then um, the uh, the um, hepatitis C was detected in a slightly different way but um, those that yeah assays like that are not readily available in Africa and um, they would make a big difference uh, to treating physicians um, and other you know nurses and so on who who can be specialized and uh, treat patients that um, having diagnostics on site rather than having to send them to labs uh, which may be hundreds or even thousands of miles away makes a huge difference so I guess now we can kind of move on to thinking about priorities um, into I know it'll be completely different maybe um, here in the UK as it is um, to different countries in Africa but if we're thinking about kind of the WHO hope to eradicate viral hepatitis as a public health problem um, and to those listening that means a 90% reduction in the incidence and 65% reduction in the mortality um, there will be different priorities um, across the world to, to how to tackle that um, so I was wondering kind of within the sub-Saharan African setting what you think the priorities might be there I know we've talked about diagnosis talked about treatment and how that differs maybe to the UK and Europe 
Yeah, I think in some ways it doesn't differ uh, in that it is achievable and uh, treatments can be given. And uh, many countries now have started to report fantastic sustained virological re response rates, including Rwanda, Benin has data now, Uganda, uh, other countries um, across sub-Saharan Africa are managing to treat patients. Um, the problem is that for many countries, uh, treatment is not subsidized by the state, and so people have to find the money for it, and um, that can vary substantially. And one of the pieces of work that we've done as a, as a group, as a consortium, which we, we published a, a year or two ago, was to look at the prices of hepatitis C treatment different uh, countries in, across Africa. And this is another reason to have a network, because... Uh, when you find out that your neighbouring country is getting treatment at half the price, you can <laughs> you can make you can complain about that, and um, you can also go in uh, as a sort of pan African group rather than just one country, which can help to bring, in theory, could help to bring the prices down a bit because then you'd be ordering more, uh, and and therefore you know you presumably can get better sort of um, prices. So. Um, that's that's a, a a major issue and uh, and i think also value for money and the sort of cost effectiveness of treating people for hep hepatitis c has to be made very clear to ministries of health so i think those but but that's not different <laughs> from countries in europe or um uh, elsewhere the only thing is that there are heavier constraints on the these governments and um it, and particularly on the health ministries and you know, um, you need to spend a bit of money to, you need to invest quite a bit of money to treat people who are at risk, particularly if you're going to get the incidence down by 80% or 90%. And um, also if you um, want to have the effect of reducing mortality by 65%, which is one of the aims and of, of elimination of, of hepatitis C. Um, it's not eradication, as you say, but actually it's a, a huge step on the way to that. And uh, um, I, I think that uh, it, it is tangible and that it's quite exciting to see governments and uh, um, healthcare workers feeling empowered to uh, treat people who've acquired the infection. That's great. So as you're saying, you think that is achievable kind of in the next in the next eight years. So I guess. Um, what are your hopes then for kind of obviously keep keeping these networks going, the networks really building? Um, but yeah, what are your kind of hopes for the next to see in the next eight years of, of eradication <laughs> by 2030? But are there any other things kind of, you know, for I know that you work as well within the NHS with people living with HIV and, and other things. Are there any things that you think kind of could come from all of this infrastructure being built and, um, and other things like that? I think um, hepatitis C has benefited, actually, treatment has benefited a lot, in fact, not so much from COVID, but from HIV infrastructure. Um, and uh, um, it's become clear to governments and healthcare authorities that they can use the existing infrastructure for treating people with HIV to treat people with hepatitis C. And um, sometimes people have both viruses, of course, because there are shared routes of transmission and um, it can be helpful to have specialists who deal with both viruses uh, because sometimes the medicines for HIV can interact with the medicines for hepatitis C but there are always options and it's never it's never so problematic that um, treatment isn't possible for both viruses so um, but you do have to be a little bit careful about interaction sometimes between those medicines and therefore expertise in that kind of area is quite important 
Uh, I think for the future, uh, I, while I think elimination is tangible by 2030, um, it will require a huge, huge effort. And it, it, we're in Africa, we're not yet on track for that, but um, that could be changed. And um, uh, there, there are the beginnings, the shoots of um, progress there, and it would be good to see that grow and uh, to, to really to see hepatitis C as being something a disease of the past. I think we're already seeing that quite excitingly in Glasgow. Um, so, uh, uh, for example, I now have very, I, I, my speciality has, been, has actually been HIV and hepatitis C treatment, and we, we have very few co-infected patients now. Um, and that, that's really uh, exciting. And we've, or we've completely eradicated hepatitis C now from um, the haemophilia population. Um, we've treated almost all cases in um, men who have sex with men, which uh, who were affected by hepatitis C. And then we've treated very many people who inject drugs. Um, and the, the last cases are always the most difficult. So uh, in fact, the end of any elimination plan has to actually up the infrastructure rather than decrease it as the numbers go down because um, some we find that the people that we have uh, find it are quite difficult to treat many of them are homeless for example and so we have to think about different strategies to access that population um, which we do and we have some really great nurses who spend a lot of time in the community treating people for both HIV and hepatitis C um, who, who for example are homeless that's why it's so important as well, I guess, to, to be working with charities who support these, pe um, these people in these vulnerable communities. And the project that we run with Terence Higginstrass, I think the, the resounding kind of conversations that we're having there is that they're seeing a lot less people with hepatitis C coming into their um, services because they've kind of come in, they've been treated and they've gone and they haven't needed those ongoing services as much. And that's been something they've really noticed in the last few years. Um, but this is absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much, Emma, um, for taking the time to chat to us today and um, let us know your hopes for the future. Um, and yeah, we'll come back next year and um, have another update. But thank yeah, you. Sure. So just, to, just to quickly finish, I, I can't say enough about how fantastic Terence Higgins and the Waverly Care are in particular. Um, they, they're really involved and uh, make huge differences from their, for, for people that they help. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a real bonus to work with them. Exactly. And um, for, for any listeners who are interested, we have an event in September um, working with the Terence Higgins Trust where we're bringing together all of the people that are involved in the conversation around bloodborne viruses into one room to have a discussion about what the priorities are um, for bloodborne virus research and for care. Um, so we're really excited about that. Um, and we also have an art exhibition um, in our partnership with Terence Higgins Trust, which is going to be launched at the same time. So we'll be putting more um, information about that on our website and our social media soon. But thanks again, Emma, so much. And um, yeah, we'll catch up again. Um, well, <laughs> thanks. Next okay, year. take care. Bye bye.